Chapter Twelve: The Triwizard Tournament. Twelve chapters later, <laughs> we've just got to Hogwarts. It's like they try to distribute all the information evenly. They put new informations in each chapters, and they try to, you know, introduce this storyline, introduce new characters in each、uh, separate chapters. Versus, I remember in the movie, a lot of these all happened at once in the Great Hall while they're announcing the Tri Wizard Tournament, and Dumbledore was saying, you know, Mad Eye Mooney. And this and that—they all happen in the Great Hall. I, I remember that, but I guess that's just how books works. They have to allocate all the informations evenly into each chapters. That's how it works.、Uh, so far, I don't know how you think about this, except the fact that they cut a lot of things out from the book, which I'm not pleased about. I'm really fond of some of the details they took out. Other than that, I personally prefer the pacing from the movie. But let's just go on see if I would change my mind. Now they just arrived. We've just arrived. Hogwarts Castle, and it's pouring rain. It's rain fast becoming a gale. Leaning against the window, Harry could see Hogwarts coming nearer. Its many lighted windows blurred and shimmering behind the thick curtains of rain. Lightning even flashed across the sky as their carriage came to a halt before the great oak front doors. So Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville jumped down from their carriage and dashed up the steps too. Like everybody else, looking up only when they were safely inside the cavernous, torch-lit entrance hall with its magnificent marble staircase, the iconic. Each book is waiting, waiting till they get to the iconic entrance hall and the marble staircase, where Professor McGonagall will be announcing. <laughs> But not this time. They're fourth years already. Ron was just saying, "Blimey! If that keeps up, the lake's going to overflow. I'm soaked." Ah, a large red water field. Balloon had dropped from out of the ceiling onto Ron's head, and exploded, drenched and sputtering. Ron staggered sideways into Harry. Just as the second water bomb dropped, narrowly missing Hermione, it burst at Harry's feet, sending a wave of cold water over his trainers into his socks. Oh, that's a nasty feeling. That's Peeves, the Poltergeist. Peeves, Peeves, come down here at once. Professor McGonagall had come dashing out of the Great Hall. She skidded on the wet floor and grabbed Hermione around the neck to stop herself from falling. Am I reading this right? Professor McGonagall grabbed Hermione's neck and kind of circling around because of the wet floor to stop herself from falling. That's something straight out of the romance movie. Ouch! Sorry, Miss Granger. That's right, Professor. Hermione gasped, massaging her throat. Peeves stuck out his tongue, threw the last of his water bombs into the air, and zoomed off up the marble staircase, cackling insanely. Well, move along then, Professor McGonagall was saying sharply, "Into the Great Hall, come on!" So everybody is kind of slipped and slid across the entrance hall, like through the double doors. J.K. Rowling would find every opportunity to kind of tuck in some mischievous actions or behaviors. To lighten the mood, I'm not sure what this serves, but it's fun to read. Just imagine everyone just slipped and slid across the entrance hall. The great hall looked at the UU. Wait a minute, they're not going to get changed. They're all drenched because the next paragraph goes straight to the great hall description. If the students sat there enjoying the meal in their wet clothes and wet socks, Harry's God. They're going to get sick, or maybe they are just children, so they they have amazing recovery abilities. So anyway, the Great Hall looked its usual splendid self, 
I can't help but thinking about that line from *The Haunting of the Blind Manor*. Everything's perfectly splendid, perfectly splendid. Decorated for the start of term feast, golden plates and goblets gleamed by the light of hundreds and hundreds of candles floating over the tables in midair. The four long house tables were packed with chattering students. At the top of the hall, the staff sat along one side of a fifth table, facing their pupils. It was much warmer in here. Harry, Ron, and Hermione walked past the Slytherins, the Ravenclaws, and the Hufflepuffs, and sat down with the rest of the Gryffindors at the far side of the hall, next to nearly headless Nick, pearly white and semi-transparent. <laughs> Good evening, he said, beaming at them. Says who? Hope they hurry up with the sorting. I'm starving. Harry said, taking off his trainers and emptying them of water. And just when he was doing that, Colin, Colin Creevy, a third year now and Harry's biggest fan, coming and say hi. He's telling Harry his brother is starting. Brother Denise. They are discussing of the sorting, and Colin Creevy is like, "I hope he is in Gryffindor. Fingers crossed." But look at the Weasleys, all seven of whom had been put into Gryffindor. But there are also Pavity. Poverty Patel's twins is in Ravenclaw, and they're identical. Poverty Patel actually, this name had come up so many times by now. We have them in book three and two, I think. You never gave them too much thought, but just remembering in the ball dance, they are with Ron and Harry, I think. So yeah, I just remember they are the Indian girls. Really beautiful, by the way. And we go to the staff table. Well, of course, through Harry's gazes, Harry go check that Hagrid is not there yet because I guess he was still fighting his way across the lake with the first years. And Professor McGonagall was here, of course, supervising the drying of the entrance hall floor. Then tiny little Professor Flitwick, the charms teacher, was sitting on a large pile of cushions besides Professor Sprout, the herbology teacher, of course. And she was talking to Professor Sinistra, Sinistra, Sinister, Sinistra of the astronomy department. And on Professor Sinistra's other side was a sallow-faced, hook-nosed, greasy-haired potions master, <laughs> Snape. I was like, who is that? It's Snape. Dun dun dun. Harry's least favorite person at Hogwarts. And another dash. Harry's loathing of Snape was matched only by Snape's hatred of him, a hatred which had, if possible, intensified last year. Again, previously on Harry Potter. On Snape's other side was an empty seat, which Harry guessed was the Professor McGonagall's. Next to it, and in the very center of the table, sat Professor Dumbledore, the headmaster. His sweeping silver hair and beard, shining in the candlelight, is magnificent. Deep green robes embroidered with many stars and moons. Oh yeah, that's classic. The tips of Dumbledore's long thin fingers were together, and he was resting his chin upon them, staring up at the ceiling through his half-moon spectacles, as though lost in thought. Harry glanced up at the ceiling too. <laughs> It's like, oh, my idol is staring at the ceiling. I'm going to do that too. But the ceiling of Hogwarts Castle is really magnificent. It looked like the sky outside, and he had never seen it look this stormy. Black and purple clouds were swirling across it. With thunder and lightning, a fog of lightning flashed across it, and that's beautiful. Oh, hurry up! I could eat a hippogriff, Buckbeak. Oh no! This is Ron moaning. The words were no sooner out of his mouth than the doors of the great hall opened and silence fell. Professor McGonagall was leading a long line of first years up the top of the hall. If Harry, Ron, and Hermione were wet, it was nothing to how these first years looked. Poor guys. 
they appear to have swum across the lake rather than sailed. What if they don't know how to swim? And we see Colin Creevy's brother had mouthed to him like, "I fell in the lake. <laughs> Thank God you're still alive." Then the sorting began. Professor McGonagall placed a four-legged stool on the ground before the first years, and on top of it, an extremely old, dirty, patched wizard's hat. The sorting hat, or maybe the swords too. Remember, the Gryffindor swords. Oh, they even put the song here again, but slightly different because Harry also noticed like that's not the song it sang when it sorted us. Sings a different one every year. It's got to be a pretty boring life, hasn't it? Being a hat, I suppose it spends all years making up the next one. <laughs> Ron said. So the sorting began. When Professor McGonagall called their names, they will be put on the hat and set on the stool and waiting to be sorted. I'm looking for a name. I remember. Like reading some articles, J.K. Rowling find out one of the reader, one of the fan of Harry Potter series, was a little girl, like died of leukemia or something, and she decided to put her name because she wanted to be in Gryffindor, and she J.K. Rowling writes her name in book four, and she was sorted into Gryffindor. That was a beautiful story. And rest in peace. And I'm looking for that. First, we see some Stuart, Stuart Ackley. Was sorted in Ravenclaw and joined Cho Chen. Harry caught a glimpse of Cho, the Ravenclaw seeker, cheering Stuart as he sat down for a fleeting second. Harry had a strange desire to join the Ravenclaw table too. Hey, Harry, what are you doing? Then Denise Crivey, Colin Crivey's brother, was sorted to Gryffindor. Okay, wish come true. He was telling Colin Creevy, "It's like Colin, I fell in. It was brilliant, and something in the water grabbed me and pushed me back in the boat." Cool, says Colin. Okay, that explains what if the kids don't know how to swim. It was probably the giant squid, Denise. Wow, said Denise, as though nobody in their wildest dreams could hope for more than being thrown into a storm toast. Fathom Steep Lake and pushed out of it again by a giant sea monster. Well, that's a Gryffindor. Then finally, the sorting ended. Professor McGonagall picked up the hat and the stool and carried them away. About time, Ron was like, "I need to eat." Seizing his knife and fork and looking expectantly at his golden plate, Professor Dumbledore had gotten to his feet. He was smiling around at students. His arms opened wide in welcome. I have only two words to say to you: Tuck in. Professor Dumbledore always knew exactly what the children needs. Like say no more, just eat. So instantly the empty dishes fell magically before their eyes. Ron was like, "Ah、oh, dear," with his mouthful of mashed potatoes. I don't know about you, but the rest several paragraphs is about Peeves, Bloody Baron, just another rundown of all the ghosts and poltergeists and the tricks they pulled. Ugh, the usual ranked havoc. It reads very cumbersome for me right now. But maybe for the new readers, who is going to start Harry Potter series from book four? I'm just like, stop doing this, J.K. After several long paragraphs, finally Nick was mentioning some house elves in the kitchen. Hermione just all of a sudden knocked over her golden goblet, and pumpkin juice spread steadily over the tablecloth. There are house elves here, she said, staring horror strike at nearly headless Nick here at Hogwarts. Certainly," said nearly headless Nick, looking surprised at her reaction. "The largest number in any jewelry in Britain, I believe, over a hundred. I've never seen one," said Hermione. "Well, they hardly ever leave the kitchen by day, do they? They come out at night to do a bit cleaning, 
see to the fires and so on. I mean, you're not supposed to see them, are you? That's a mark of a good house elf, isn't it? But you don't know it's there. Oh, so a good house elf's mark is you don't even know its existence. Hermione just go focus. It's like, but they get paid? They get holidays, don't they? And sick leave? Pensions? And everything? You don't even need me to read it back to you to know that house elves, they don't get any of those things. And because right now Hermione know they worked in the kitchen, so she refused to eat another bite. She went on a hunger strike. I like how Ron was waving food in front of her. It's like, trickle tongue, Hermione. Spotted dick. Look, chocolate gateau. I just have one question. What the heck is spotted dick? But Hermione gave Ron a look so reminiscent of Professor McGonagall that he gave up. When the puddings too had been demolished, the last crumbs had faded had faded off the plate. Why do you have to write something so hard to read out loud? Why don't you just put fade away? I prefer to say fade away. I don't know why am I mumbling here. Let's just keep going. And leaving them sparkling clean, Albus Dumbledore got to his feet again. The buzz of chatter. I like every time Dumbledore stand up, everybody stop talking. So here when he got to his feet, the buzz of the chatter filled the hall ceased almost at once. So, said Dumbledore, smiling around at them all, now that we're all fed and watered. I must once more ask for your attention while I gave out a few notices. Mr. Felch, the caretaker, has asked me to tell you that the list of objects forbidden inside the castle has this year been extended to include da da da. The full list comprises some 437 items, I believe, and can be viewed in Mr. Felch's office if anyone would like to check it. 437, huh? When will we get to 4,000? Dumbledore keep going. As ever, I would like to remind you all that the forest on the grounds is out of bounds to students and is the village of Hogsmeade to all below third year. It is also my painful duty to inform you that the Interhouse Quidditch Cup will not take place this year. What? Harry just immediately gasped. This is due to an event that will be starting in October and continuing throughout the school year, taking up much of the teacher's time and energy. But I'm sure you will all enjoy it immensely. I have great pleasure in announcing that this year at Hogwarts, at this very moment, can you choose a better time, better timing? Mad-Eye Moody walked in, and J.K. Rowling spent the next seven paragraphs describing him. First, there was a deafening rumble of thunder and the doors of the great hall banged open. A man stood there in a black traveling cloak. Nobody really said anything, just more fog of lightning that flashed across the ceiling. This mad-eye guy lowered his hood, shook out a long mane of grizzled dark gray hair, then began to walk up towards the teacher's table and limped heavily towards Dumbledore. His face, it's a face unlike any Harry had ever seen. It looked as though it had been carved out of a weathered wood by someone who had only the vaguest idea of what human faces are supposed to be, <laughs> supposed to look like, and was none too skilled with the chisel. Every inch of the skin seemed to be scarred, oh my lord. A large chunk of the nose was missing, and it was the man's eyes that made him frightening. One of them was small, dark, and biddy. The other was large, round as a coin, and vivid, electric, blue. Okay, this guy, the stranger, reached Dumbledore. He stretched out a hand that was as badly scarred as his face, and Dumbledore shook it. 
Then the stranger sat down, shook his mane of dark gray hair out of his face, pulled a plate of sausages towards him, raised it to what was left of his nose, and sniffed it. He then took a small knife out of his pocket, speared a sausage on the end of it, and began to eat. Okay, just a guy eating a sausage. That's fine. What's not fine is his normal eye was fixed upon the sausage, but the blue eye was still darting restlessly around in its socket, taking in the hole and the students. May I introduce our new defense against the dark art teacher, Professor Moody? Instead of applause, now just silence. <laughs> Everyone else except Dumbledore and Hagrid, they just seem too transfixed by Moody's bizarre appearance to do anything more than just staring at him. And people just whispering to each other like, "What happened to him? What happened to his face?" And just, I guess, in the, in between the tables, which is really rude. But they are only like kids, so I will forgive them. Moody seemed totally indifferent to his less than warm welcome. Ignoring the jug of pumpkin juice in front of him, he reached again into his traveling cloak, pulled out a hip flask. I remember this in the movies, this hip flask, and took a long draught from it. As he's drinking, Harry also noticed. Hey, I must say, Harry Potter, why are you so observant? He saw below the table several inches of carved wooden leg. So nobody cared. Then Dumbledore cleared his throat. As I was saying, we are to have the honor of hosting a very exciting event over the coming months, an event that has not been held for over a century. It is my very great pleasure to inform you that the Triwizard Tournament will be taking place at Hogwarts this year. You are joking," said Fred Weasley, and that just represented everybody's excitement. And Dumbledore heard it. It's like, I'm not joking, Mr. Weasley. Though now that you mention it, I did hear an excellent one over the summer. Oh no, Dumbledore here is going to tell a joke. A troll, a hag, and a leprechaun who all go into a bar. Professor McGonagall cleared her throat loudly. Ah, <clears throat>、uh, but maybe this is not the time. No, where was I? Ah, yes. The Triwizard Tournament. Well, some of you will not know what this tournament involves, so I hope those who do know will forgive me for giving a short explanation and allow their attention to wander freely. I could listen to Dumbledore's speech for ages, for centuries, no problem. Okay, the following is the most important part of this chapter, so don't let your attention wander. The Triwizard Tournament was first established some seven hundred years ago as a friendly competition between the three largest European schools of wizardry: Hogwarts, Bobatons, and Durmstrang. <laughs> so J.K. Rowling never gave you extra information. All the schools mentioned in the previous chapters will come back. Now we know the three largest European schools are Hogwarts, Bobatons, whose students they have in Harry, Ron, Hermione had encountered in the Night of Terror. Those French teen wizards and Durmstrang, which is like a dark wizard school that Draco Malfoy almost gone to. If his mother was not worried sick about going too far away, so、oh, between the three, it's a friendly competition between the, those three largest school of wizardry and witchcraft. A champion was selected to represent each school, and the three champions competed in three magical tasks. The schools took it in terms to host the tournaments once every five years, and it was generally agreed. To be a most excellent way of establishing ties between young witches and wizards of different nationalities, until that is, the death toll mounted so high that the tournament was discontinued. Death toll? 
except for Hermione. Almost everybody else was far more interested in hearing about the tournaments than in worrying about the deaths that happened some hundreds of years ago. There have been several attempts over the centuries to reinstate the tournaments, none of which has been very successful. However, our own departments of international magical cooperation and magical games and sports—oh my God! Did they just made those names up? These departments have decided the time is ripe for another attempt. We have worked hard over the summer to ensure that this time no champion will find himself or herself in mortal danger. Oh yeah, sure. We will see about that. No worries. The heads of Bobatons and Durmstrangs are not here yet. They will be arriving with their shortlisted contenders in October, and the selection of the three champions will take place at Halloween. An impartial judge will decide which students are most worthy to compete for the Triwizard Cup, glory of their school, and a thousand galleons personal prize money. I'm going for it, just like Fred Weasley here. Everybody's face lit with enthusiasm at the prospect of such glory and riches. But not Harry. I think Harry doesn't care too much about it. And also, Dumbledore's speech hasn't over yet. Eager though, I know all of you will be to bring the Triwizard Cup to Hogwarts. The heads of the participating schools, along with the Ministry of Magic, have agreed to impose an age restriction on contenders this year. Only students who are of age—that is to say, seventeen years or older—will be allowed to put forward their names for consideration. This. Is a measure we feel is necessary, given that the tournament's tasks will be very difficult and dangerous. Whatever precautions we take, and it is highly unlikely that students below sixth and seventh year will be able to cope with them, I will personally be ensuring that no underage student hoodwinks our impartial judge into making them Hogwarts champion. I therefore beg you not to waste your time submitting yourself if you are under seventeen. Then that's almost it. Dumbledore just keep on saying the delegations from Bobatons and Durmstrangs will be arriving in October. Then remaining with us for the greater part of this year. So hopefully every Hogwarts student will extend every courtesy to our foreign guests while they are with us, and will give your wholehearted support to the Hogwarts champion when he or she is selected. And now it is late, and I know how important it is to you all to be alert and rested. As you enter your lessons tomorrow morning, bedtime. Chop chop. I really like that bedtime chop chop thing. And Dumbledore just sat down again and turned to talk to Mad Eye Mooney. Oh no no, Mad Eye Moody. Sorry, I think I've been saying Mooney. I just vividly remember Mad Eye. But anyway, it's Mad Eye Moody. Okay. On their way up to the common room, Fred and George, of course, angrily said they are going to enter anyway since they will turn seventeen in April. Good for them. And Harry was asking, do, "Who do you think the impartial judge would be?" And Ron said he'd consider entering too. And Neville says his grandmother would really like him to enter, but he hasn't learned enough. Then, oopsie! Neville's foot had dunked right through a step halfway up the staircase. These dumb tricksters trick stairs at. It's described as almost like second nature to most of the elder, not elder but older students, jump this particular step. But Neville's memory was notoriously poor. Harry and Ron seized him under the armpits and pulled him out. They made their way up to the entrance to the Gryffindor Tower, which was concealed behind a large portrait of a fat lady in pink silk dress. Passwords, she said as they approached. Borodash said George, a prefect downstairs, told me. 
Fat Lady swung forward to reveal a hole in the wall through which they all climbed. Ah, oh, finally, Gryffindor common room, a crackling fire, warmed the circular common room, which was full of squashy armchairs and tables. From now on, Hermione would not be the same once she knows about this slavery. Just imagine those influencers today. They would like, do not drink or eat any animal products. Something like that, you know. I'm a vegetarian. I'm no offense. Okay, I am a vegetarian as well. I'm just saying it's like those obsessively activists. That's Hermione here. So Hermione cast a merely dancing flame, a dark look, mutter something like slave labor before bidding them good night and disappearing through the doorway to the girls' dormitory. Even though we all know by now, I'm still going to read this part, the description of their dormitory to you. It just sounded so cozy. Especially after the rainy night, thunderstorm night. So their dormitory is Harry, Ron, and Neville. Their roommates. They reached their own dormitory, which was situated at the top of the tower. Five four-poster beds with deep crimson hangings strewed against the walls, each with its owner's trunk at the foot. Dean and Simus, Dean Thomas and Simus Finnegan were already getting into bed. How? When? <laughs> It's described as they all have their favorite football team pinned the poster of their favorite football team pinned right next to now their favorite Quidditch player, Krum, Victor Krum, and Ron signed mental to him. It's like what the heck is football? So Harry, Ron, and Neville got into their own pajamas and into bed. Someone, a house elf, no doubt, had placed warming pants between the sheets. It was extremely comfortable, lying there in bed and listening to the storm raging outside. The last conversation we had was Ron saying, "Am I going for it? You know, if friend George find out how to the tournament, you never know, do you? Suppose not." Harry rolled over in bed, a series of dazzling new pictures forming his mind's eyes. He had hoodwinked the partial. I was going to say the partial judge, but it's actually the impartial judge. Into believing he was seventeen, he had become Hogwarts champion. He was standing on the ground, his arms raised in triumph in front of the whole school, of whom was applauding and screaming. He had just won the Tri Wizard Cup. Cho's face stood out particularly clearly in the blurred crowd. Her face glowing with admiration. Ah,、oh, teenage boys. Harry grinned into his pillow, exceptionally glad that Ron couldn't see what he could. Next, Chapter Thirteen. Mad Eye Moody. I've never commented on the picture under the chapter title, okay? But this picture of Mad Eye Moody scared the shit out of me. I'm just saying. I'm not wrapping this picture to bed. I'm still. I'm with Harry. I'm thinking about winning the tournaments, having some of my admirers standing in the blurred crowds. Okay, that's a better picture. The storm had blown itself out by the following morning. Great description. <laughs> Though the ceiling in the great hall was still gloomy, heavy clouds of pewter gray swirled overhead as Harry, Ron, and Hermione examined the new timetables at breakfast. A few seats along, Fred, George, and Lee Jordan were discussing magical methods of aging themselves and bluffing their way into the Tri Wizard tournaments. I almost feel like the previous events have not much of a ripple effect on them. Well, first day of school, Ron was running his fingers. Down the timetable, I will stop. Sorry, and he was like, "Today's not bad. Outside all morning. First, they have herbology with Hufflepuffs and care of magical creatures. Damn it, we're still with the Slytherins. Double divination this afternoon." Harry groaned, looking down. 
definition. His favorite, nah, least favorite subject. Apart from potions, Professor Trelawney kept predicting Harry's death, which he found extremely annoying. I see you. Then Hermione kept on suggesting him giving it up, like herself, and he should doing something more sensible, like arithmetic. <laughs> Ron noticed Hermione is eating again. It's like she was adding liberal amounts of jam to her buttered toast. Um, I've decided there are better ways of making a stand about elf rights. Yeah, and you were hungry. Said Ron, grinning. He cares about his girlfriend. Then it's our post time. Harry obviously has been expecting desperately letters from Sirius Black, but he's got nothing. He was started to worried and wondering: Was it possible that something had happened to Hedwig, and that Sirius hadn't even got his letter? Interesting how your mind will go at a situation like this. But stop living in denial. Just accept the fact that sometimes people don't write you back, and they have better things to do. Joking. And we see everybody else got something. Neville got something. Uh, puzzle. Usually, he almost always forgot something. Forgot to pack something. And we even get a Draco Malfoy's deliver quite unexpectedly. Draco Malfoy's eagle owl had landed on his shoulder, carrying what looked like his usual supply of sweets and cakes from home. Seeing this, Harry returned to his porridge, <laughs> and tried to ignore the sinking feeling of disappointment in his stomach. He's got a lot of feelings in his stomach. I just found this is interesting for the first time. It's not Malfoy come all the way to the Gryffindor table, make fun of them, or say something nasty. For the first time, it's Harry's sides traveled or wandered all the way to the other side of the hall to Draco Malfoy and what Draco Malfoy gets from the Eagle Owl. His preoccupation lasted all the way across the greenhouse. Here in Herbology, Professor Sprout finally successfully distracted Harry from. Serious black, not writing back. You're in love, boy. By showing the class the ugliest plants Harry had ever seen. Indeed, they looked less like plants than thick black giant slugs protruding vertically out of the soil. Each was squirming slightly and had a number of large shining swellings upon it, which appeared to be full of liquid. Ew, 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 ew. Booba tubers. Professor Sprout told them briskly. They need squeezing. You will collect the pus. Ah. The wall said Seamus Finnegan, sounding revolted. Pus, Finnegan, pus, and it's extremely valuable, so don't waste it. You will collect the pus, I say, in these bottles. Wear your dragon hide gloves. It can do funny things to the skin when undiluted. Booba chuba pus, booba chuba, booba chuba, like booba milk tea, and youtuber, Chase squeezing the booba chubers. Was disgusting, but oddly satisfying. As each swelling was popped, I'm not sure if I want to keep on reading this part. I started to get a sense of popping something on a teenage puberty-faced teenage boys or girls' face. It is disgusting, but new, absolutely not oddly satisfying. I try to think about what are the things that's disgusting but oddly satisfying. Can't think of any at this moment. Anyway, move on. By the end of the class, they had collected several pints. This will keep Madame Poppy <laughs> Pumphrey happy," says、uh, Professor Sprout, stoppering the last bottle with a cork. An excellent remedy for the more stubborn forms of acne. I was right for acne. Well, they're teenage boys now. Booba chuba pus should stop students resorting to desperate measures to rid themselves of pimples. I think I was lucky. That never bothers me. I I've never had that even during my teenage years. 
But what are the desperate measures to rid themselves of pimples? I don't know. So I will be willingly ignoring the rest of the gossip between the girls while they discussing Eloise Medjen. I think some girl. This is actually a running joke. Later it will come back. So this Eloise Medjen tried to curse hers off. But Madame Pomfrey fixed her nose back on in the end. Silly girl, they were commenting like Eloise Mitchin. This girl tried to remove her pimples or something. Ended up removing her nose entirely, and Madame Pomfrey has to grow her nose back, I guess, because during the yobol,、uh, they were still discussing this thing. Like, there's something wrong with that girl's nose. They are judging her. That's pretty mean to say something about a girl's acne or. Just commenting on people's appearance during teenage years is quite mean because I think as you are at that age, you're super sensitive about those comments, and I don't want everybody can develop a eating disorder or like get pretty crazy about their skin and have to be beautiful and perfect and couldn't accept themselves for who they are, even though. Anyway, that's probably too serious. Next, after the herbology, Hufflepuff's transfiguration, and Gryffindor's heading in the other direction towards Hagrid's small wooden cabin, which stood on the edge of the Forbidden Forest, and they're going to learn care of magical creatures. Knowing Hagrid, I'm feeling nervous for them, and we've already got something really nasty and disgusting at herbology. What Hagrid has in store for them, I'm not sure. So we will see. Harry got there. I mean, Gryffindor got there earlier. So Harry was like, "Morning, better wait for the Slytherins. They won't want to miss this blast and this goods." Come again," said Ron. Like, sorry. Err. Squirrel Lavender Brown jumping backwards. Err. Just about summed up the blast and this goods in Harry's opinion. These names. I mean, blast ended goods. Booba Troopers. Booba Troopers. And here, blast ended goods. They looked like deformed, shellless lobsters, horribly pale and slimy-looking, with legs sticking out in very odd places and no visible heads. Ew! This just describes something. Some animals I really hate. Like I can't, I can't. They, they, these images will come back to me at night. No, one is shellless, another is headless, and third. There were about a hundred of them in each crate, each about six inches long, crawling over each other, bumping blindly into the sides of the boxes. They were giving off a very powerful smell of rotting fish. Third, the smell. So, if spiders are the weak points for the run, these blast-ended scurs are mine. So, Hagrid's projects for the students. Are for them to raise them, as in to raise them, feed them, like they are baby mommy and daddies. And why would we want to raise them? Said the cold voice. The Slytherins had arrived. The speaker was, of course, Draco Malfoy. I must say, good question. I would ask the same one, but maybe not so rudely. I would probably secretly ask Hagrid about the same question. But Hagrid looked stooped. I always feel pretty sorry for Hagrid as a teacher because he's not very—he's kind of thick, isn't he? He's not. Not very bright. I'm sorry, but he had such a gold soul. Not even just have a good soul. He had gold soul. I don't think Harry would have survived the first year without him. But he is not a <laughs> he's not a good teacher. Malfoy keep on pushing him. I mean, what do they do? What is the point of them? Hagrid opened his mouth, apparently thinking hard. There was a few seconds pause. Then he said roughly. That's next lesson, Malfoy. You're just feeding them today. Now, Hagrid started to hand them all sorts of disgusting things to feed them, like ant eggs, frog livers, grass snake. 
I'm not sure how they handle this so far. First pus, now this, just like Seamus Finnegan has said. Nothing but deep affection for Hagrid. Could have made Harry Ron Hermione pick up a handful of frog liver and lower them into the crates to tempt the blast and his goods. Harry couldn't suppress the suspicion that the whole thing was entirely pointless because the skirts didn't seem to have a mouth this. And then there were accidents as well as some crates exploded, like its end exploded, and it blasted Dean Thomas. Dean Thomas is like, ouch, it got me. Hagrid just like, oh yeah, that happens. And then Lavender Brown was asking, what's that pointy thing on it? Ah, some of them have got stings. Lavender quickly withdrew her hand from the box. See how Hagrid ha doesn't have a normal sense of danger. So he, he says, I reckon they're males. The females got sort of sucker things on their bellies. I think they might be to suck blood. As students definitely don't see the point of doing this thing, like Malfoy was saying, why are we keeping them alive? And Hermione just said, just because they're not very pretty, it doesn't mean they're not useful. Nicely put, Hermione. She was saying dragon blood's amazingly magical, but you wouldn't want a dragon for a pet, would you? Or maybe you do. At least Hagrid would, because he was having this furtive smile from behind his bushy beard. We know that Hagrid simply loved monstrous creatures the more lethal, the better. Well, at least the skirts are small, said Ron, and they made their way back up to the castle for lunch an hour later. How do they have stomach for lunch? They are now, said Hermione in an exasperated voice, but once Hagrid's found out what they eat, I expect they will be six feet long. Well, that won't matter if they turn out to cure seasickness or something, will it? Here, actually, Hermione made a confession, it's like, you know perfectly well, said to Ron, you know perfectly well. I only said that to shut Malfoy up. As a matter of fact, I think he's right. The best thing to do would be to stamp on a lot of them before they start attacking us all. I just really like the conversation between Ron and Hermione. They sat down at Gryffindor table and helped themselves to lamb chops and potatoes. Hermione began to eat so fast that Harry and Ron stared at her. I, I mean, how could they eat? I can't. Anyway, Hermione was eating so fast. Ron goes, uh, is this a new stand on elf rights? You are going to make yourself puke instead? No, said Hermione. I just want to get to the library. And with as much dignity as she could muster with her mouth bulging with sprouts. What? said Ron in disbelief. Hermione, it's the first day back. We haven't even got homework yet. Hermione shrugged and continued to shovel down her food as though she had not eaten for days. Then she leapt to her feet and said, see you at dinner and departed at high speed. Double divination in the afternoon. Same old shenanigans with Professor Trelawney and Lavender Brown and Poverty Patel are the favorite students of Professor Trelawney's and everything is the same. The classroom is the same, the smells are the same, the perfumes are the same. It always make Harry drowsy and she's teaching them the stars, the movements of the planets. She was saying the mysterious potents they reveal only to those who understand the steps of the celestial dance. Human destiny may be deciphered by the planetary rays, which intermingle. Da, da, da. But Harry's thoughts had drifted. Only until Ron muttered, Harry, what? Harry looked around. The whole class was staring at him. He sat up straight. He had been almost dozing off, lost in the heat and his thoughts. Professor Trelawney was saying Harry was born under the baleful influence of Saturn. Harry was like, born under what? Sorry? Saturn, dear. The planet Saturn. Professor Trelawney sounding definitely irritated. 
I was saying that Saturn was surely in a position of power in the heavens at the moment of your birth. Your dark hair. Anyway, she's saying that Harry was born in midwinter, but Harry's like, no, I was born in July. Ron just laughs out loud and also hacking coughs. Half an hour later, each of them had been giving a complicated circular charts and was attempting to fill in the position of the planets at their moments of birth. It was a dull work, and because of Ron's joke on lavender brown, Professor Trelawney gave them so much homework at the end of the class. It's like a detailed analysis of the way the planetary movements in the coming months. I want it ready to hand in next Monday, and no excuses. Only if they have smartphones back then, they could consult any apps or websites. They can get their next month's planetary movement indications or references whatsoever. At dinner, I really like that they have lunch together and dinner together. The three of them, they are exchanging their experiences in the afternoon. And Ron was like, "Oh, so much homework! It will take all weekends." And Hermione was like, "Lots of homework." Professor Victor didn't give us any at all. They reached the entrance hall, which was packed with people queuing for dinner. They are probably starving after a whole day's class. Just when they've queued up, and Malfoy's here, of course. Malfoy's developed some some sort of sixth sense of the trio. But definitely show up teleports here somewhere, and was saying, "Weasley, Weasley, your dad's on paper." Malfoy is brandishing a copy of the Daily Prophet and speaking very loudly so that everyone in the packed entrance hall could hear. Listen to this. Then he read out loud the further mistakes at the Ministry of Magic. It's from the paper and basically targeting on Arthur Weasley, but spelled his name wrong. Instead of Arthur Weasley, it called Arnold Weasley of the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts Office. So Malfoy looked up. It's like imagine them not even getting his name right, Weasley. It's almost as though he's a completely non-entity, isn't it? And there's a picture of Ron's parents, Mister and Missus Weasley, outside their house. And Malfoy was saying, "Well, if you can call it a house, your mother could do with losing a bit of weight, couldn't she?" Oh my God! Ron was shaking, shaking with fury. Everyone was staring at him. Get stuffed, Malfoy said. Harry, come on, Ron. So Harry stood up for Ron, and what Malfoy responded with is like, "Oh, you are staying with them this summer. So tell me, is his mother really that pocky, or is it just a picture?" And Harry is like, "You know your mother, Malfoy." Not a good stand. Don't copy your enemy, Harry. If they are targeting mothers, don't copy that. Don't make comments about other people's mothers. Just targeting at this person. But we do get to see Malfoy、uh, defending his mother quite firmly. So Harry is like, you know, your mother, Malfoy. The expression she's got, like she's got dung under her nose. Has she always looked like that, or was it just because you were with her? That's understandable. But still. Let's keep mothers out of the conversation, okay? And Malfoy's pale face went slightly pink. Don't you dare insult my mother! Keep your fat mouth shut, then," said Harry, turning away. And then, bam! Malfoy was attacking him with wands. And before he could get his wand in his robe to pay this one back, he heard the second ban. And this one is from Professor Moody. Oh, this was the scene in the movie when Moody turned Malfoy into a white ferret. I don't really remember. It's because of this that Moody turned Malfoy into a ferret. I thought it was like I know Moody was defending Harry and turning Draco into a ferret. That was quite funny. And Professor McGonagall came out to say, "We don't do that to a student." I remember that. But I remember that happens 
outside, like somewhere open in an open like clearing. Here is just everybody queuing to get dinner. And Moody came down from the staircase, from the marble staircase. So Moody asked Harry, "It's like, did he get you?" No, said Harry. Missed. Leave it. Moody shouted. Leave what? Harry said, bewildered. Not you, him. Moody growled, jerking his thumb over shoulder at Crab, who had just frozen, about to pick up the white ferret. It seemed that Moody's rolling eyes were magical and could see out of the back of his head. And Moody started to limp towards Crab, Goyle, and the ferret, which gave a terrified squeak and took off, striking towards the dungeons. I don't think so," roared Moody, pointing his wand at the ferret again. It flew ten feet into the air, fell with a smack to the floor, and then bounced upwards once more. I don't like people who attack when their opponent's back's turned," growled Moody. This was a classic quote, and the ferret flew through the air, its legs and tail flattening helplessly. Poor Malfoy. <laughs> Professor Moody said a shocked voice. Professor McGonagall was coming down the marble staircase. Okay, Professor McGonagall did come out and interfere. Same in the movies, but、um, I mean slightly different. Moody said, "I'm teaching." Teach? Moody, is that a student? Then she pulled out her wand, and a moment later, with a loud snapping noise, Draco Malfoy had reappeared, lying in a heap on the floor with his sleek, still mentioning that sleek blonde hair all over his now brilliantly pink face. He got to his feet, wincing. Moody, we never use transfiguration as a punishment. Surely Professor Dumbledore told you that? Well, he might have mentioned it. Yeah, but I thought a good sharp shock. We gave detentions, Moody. Or speak to the offender's head of house. I'll do that then. Moody says, staring at Malfoy with great dislike. Malfoy, whose pale eyes were still watering with pain and humiliation, looked malevolently up at Moody and muttered something in which the words "my father" were distinguishable. Oh yeah," said Moody quietly, limping forward a few steps. Well, I know your father of old boy. You tell him Moody's keeping a close eye on his son. You tell him that from me. Now, your head of house will be Snape, will it? Yes," said Malfoy resentfully. Another old friend. Growled Moody. I have been looking forward to a chat with old Snape. Come on, you! And he seized Malfoy's upper arm and marched him off towards the dungeons. They changed this bit in the movies, right? And Professor McGonagall just used the wand to recollect her fallen books, and then Ron said quietly to Harry and Hermione, "It's like, don't talk to me." Hermione asking, "Surprise? Why not?" Because I want to fix that in my memory forever," said Ron. His eyes closed, and an uplifted expression on his face. Oh, <laughs> okay, he's laughing. I thought he's grieving. Anyway, he said, "Draco Malfoy, the amazing bouncing ferret." Harry and Hermione both laughed as well, and Hermione began doling beef casserole onto each of their plates. Ah,、uh, she's feeding them. Sweet. Next is a little bit for your Draymine. Draco Malfoy and Hermione Draymine stands. He still could have really hurt Malfoy, though. It was good, really, that Professor McGonagall stopped it. Hermione, Ron was furious, eyes open. You are ruining the best moment of my life. Hermione made an impatient noise and began to eat at top speed again. Don't tell me you are going back to the library this evening," said Harry, watching her. "Got to," said Hermione thickly. Thickly. Sometimes I just wondering, did J.K. Rowling just start to use the adverbs randomly? What is thickly? What is thickly said? Anyway, Hermione was like, "Yeah, got to loads to do." So they were like, "What loads to do? You just told us you didn't. You didn't even got any homework from Professor Victor." And Hermione was like, "It's not schoolwork." 
I must say I'm very pleased with Hermione in this book. Obviously, she's been researching different movements from history and choose to draw on elements of them as she moves forward to fight for elf rights. <laughs> However, I I don't know if they had these revolutions to defend elf rights or not. Maybe Hermione just have to draw on like Mongol history of protests. You know that would be quite foreign to the wizarding world, I guess. But she is doing this in a sensible way. I'm very happy. In the beginning, she was doing the hunger strike, very childish. But now, she is using her knowledge, using the library just to see, start to feel like a good defense lawyer, like you know, know where to look. And then, no sooner has she gone than her seat was taken by Fred Weasley. Okay, this is a good sentence for your、uh, English learners out there. No sooner had she gone than. Her seat was taken by somebody. It's like no sooner, and you have an inversion. Had she, then something be done. Anyway, <laughs> check that. That's a good、uh, sentence structure. Then boys will be boys. They were like Moody. How cool is he? Beyond cool, said George. Super cool, said Lee Jordan. I know this is just sets the same for Madai Moody, just to build him up. And they were discussing how cool is he. They just had his lesson, and it was very impressive. George was like, he really knows, knows what it's like to be out there doing it, like fighting the dark arts, said Fred and George. He's seen it all. Ron dived into his bag for his timetable, like can't wait to have this Dada class. But he was disappointed because they haven't got him until Thursday. But knowing that this isn't actually Moody and is indeed Barty Crouch, a Death Eater who loathes other Death Eaters, just like after the Night of Terror, they were saying there are kind of two groups of Death Eaters. One is like always loyal to Voldemort, and another one is like those who avoided Azkaban. And Lucius Malfoy is definitely one of them. So Lucius Malfoy would do everything to stay away from that bad reputation, denying any involvement with Voldemort for sure. So Body Crouch here, like targeting at Malfoy, is definitely a way for him to get revenge. This also show how Body Crouch as Moody here uses his station to abuse his power completely. Just like I'm the teacher now, so I can do these things for you, and you go back tell your old father that I'm keeping an eye on his son. And also later, spoiler alert: he basically single-handed orchestrating Harry's performance in the Triwizard Tournament, putting him in danger. It's like he's not actually protecting Harry; he's just doing it because he can. Bad guy being bad guy through and through. It's like being evil and cruel is actually a choice. Not that state of being. I remember when I was younger, I was reading this part and just like, okay, good guys are and bad guys, but you just slightly getting the feeling of choices, like how Dumbledore said, you are what you choose to do. It's、so、maybe you are a bad guy, but you choose to be bad and evil and cruel. We will save this part in the end. Okay, next chapter, chapter fourteen, the unforgivable curses. <laughs> 